Welcome to Policy Pod, PORF podcast. This episode is part of the Raisina Dialogue 2021, India's annual premier conference on geopolitics and geoeconomics. The conference is hosted by ORF in partnership with the Ministry of External Affairs, Government of India. Good afternoon and welcome to Raisina Dialogue 2021. This session is titled Plurilateralism Inc The Future of Global Governance. My name is Akshay Mathur. I am the head of ORF Geoeconomics program and the director of ORF Mumbai. It is a privilege and honor for me to welcome our panelists today. Ambassador Harsh Shringla, Foreign Secretary Government of India. His Excellency Carl Bildt, former Prime Minister of Sweden. Mr Nicholas Pinaud the G7 and G20 Sherpa to the OECD I welcome you all thank you for joining us Multilateralism is one of the five themes at Raisina dialogue this year understanding how multilateralism works how it is evolving how it is being shaped by global developments and international relations is key for us into designing a new approach towards global governance of course plurilateralism and even many lateralism is not new but it has certainly gained some momentum it has emerged now as a preferred approach to transnational governance perhaps there is an effort to rehabilitate plurilateralism which was otherwise frowned upon a few decades ago It seems though that plurilateralism uh, is more flexible, swift, informal, perhaps even a more effective grouping of like-minded nations. But it is clear that it is less inclusive compared to uh, the more inclusive, more representative, structured, legally binding and you know a largely consensus-based multilateral approach to global governance. So that this session We are here to explore whether plurilateralism and minilateralism have now become the new norms of global governance. Is plurilateralism likely to fragment global cooperation or is it likely to strengthen global cooperation by becoming an intermediate step? Does plurilateralism lend itself more naturally to certain issues, perhaps more to political and security issues than economic or vice versa? and what impact does plurilateralism have on existing institutions the bretton woods institutions wto and imf that were set up with the intention of having a more broad based consensus to global governance so with that uh, my first question actually it would be to ambassador stringler uh, ambassador stringler what what is your approach do you think plurilateralism has now become the new norm for global governance is multilateralism passe well, uh, thank you akshay and uh, let me first of all start by saying uh, what a pleasure it is to be a part of the raisina dialogue and uh, you know great honor to be with such eminent participants uh, as we have on this panel um we of course would have been uh, delighted to have our participants and those who are listening in on our conversation uh, in person in delhi but then i think we will have to make the best of the situation and i think digital uh you know the digital age, age gives us the opportunity to you know have much the same results uh, as we would have had otherwise 
Uh, on the issue, of course, on the issue of uh, plurilateralism versus multilateralism, I think that was the essence of your question. Uh, let me uh, preface this by saying in, in very general terms that, uh, you know, countries, uh, uh, when, when they want to engage with their external interlocutors, uh, their partners, would, would try and find the most effective and appropriate uh, formats, uh, you know, to, to engage in that regard. They could be bilateral, they could be multilateral, they could be plurilateral, and as you said, they could be minilateral. Um, and let's take uh, you know a few examples uh, in the case, and I, I, I'll try and give you um, our own experience in India to try and uh, try and put this in perspective. Uh, I think if you look at the issues, and you talked about economic issues versus political and security issues, uh, when you talk about issues, uh, let's say uh, I think nowhere has the need to consult, cooperate, and coordinate with other states uh, being felt as greatly as uh, during the COVID-19 uh, crisis. I mean, this crisis is one that has uh, global dimensions. Uh, it has, uh, of course, it also has regional dimensions because, uh, you know, groups of countries are affected differently from other players. But uh, clearly, it is not uh, within the capacity of any one state to deal with it. It needs uh, very, very extensive uh, cooperation and collaboration. Uh, and in our case, uh, you know, we, I think, saw the writing on the wall fairly early. In fact, it was Prime Minister Modi who convened the first meeting of SAC, the South Asian Association for Regional Cooperation Leaders, uh, even before, uh, you know, lockdown was thought of uh, early in March, uh, and said, let's work to see how we can cooperate regionally in dealing with this crisis. I mean, none of, none of us really know what this is leading up to. How can we work together and cooperate? And uh, this was, I think, the first time that uh, the SAC met in quite some time, and all the all the leaders joined in, uh, uh, in I mean, and and uh, and I think there was there were some very good results because the leaders decided to have a SARC emergency, a COVID uh, emergency response fund. Uh, all countries cooperated to the fund. We cooperated. We we contributed ten million dollars. Others contributed in different uh, amounts that suited them. But what was important was that it led to uh, you know cooperation, real exchange of information between health professionals. There were training sessions. There was. Uh, you know, mutual self-support. Uh, we provided uh, a lot of health-related equipment through the SARC uh, emergency uh, COVID fund. Uh, and it was a great example of regional cooperation. Even if countries didn't see eye to eye on political or security issue, uh, they could come together and work on a humanitarian issue of this nature. Then uh, the Prime Minister himself took the, uh, took the you know, initiative of proposing uh, a G20 uh, extraordinary summit uh, to be convened uh, on the COVID crisis. Uh, Saudi Arabia, which is the chair, uh, you know, I think readily agreed. And then we had uh, a G20 summit that took, uh, again, in my view, uh, some some very meaningful decisions. Uh, one of them was uh, was the debt service suspension initiative, which really said that the G20 has to consider, uh, you know, the uh, let's say economic uh, condition of many of the developing countries, these developing countries who could not pay back their debts. I know it worked very well for us because uh, when countries came to us and said, look, we can't pay this, pay back our loans, uh, our finance ministry was more than ready because we already had a structural institutional agreement on that, that we would suspend, uh, you know, the debt uh, repayment uh, part. But Prime Minister Modi in his intervention made a very good point. He said the G20, and this intervention was not uh, public because these were uh, in-house meetings. I know Mr. Pino would have been part of that. Uh, but he said that the G20 was created for financial and economic crises. For the first time, the G20 was meeting in what is essentially a humanitarian crisis. And I think this is where, uh, you know, uh, countries have to come closer together. And G20 is the best place to do that because it, 
it represents, it provides 80% of the world's GDP, it has 60% of the world's population. It is an organization uh, of the most powerful countries and can take decisions that uh, provide the resources and the direction uh, which can be uh, useful for all concerned. And, uh, and uh, you know, another example is the Quad, the first Quad summit that took place recently. You know, the Quad, uh, you know, is associated with various different, uh, you know, facets of its functioning uh, with regard to the Indo-Pacific. But for the first time, again, the Quad took a decision uh, that they would uh, come up with a vaccine initiative whereby, uh, you know, uh, in, uh, they would utilize India's manufacturing capacity with funding from Japan and the United States to produce vaccines for the Indo-Pacific region, in particular Southeast Asia. And Australia would provide the last mile support and logistical support for that uh, vaccine initiative to produce about a billion doses of the vaccine by 2022. So again, it's a plurilateral initiative, but it's not just plurilateral. You know, we are members, we are, we are now the, currently the chair of the World Health Assembly. We are part of the WHO's independent panel for pandemic preparedness and response. Uh, we worked uh, closely with Gavi. We worked closely with, uh, you know, with the UN and its different bodies on vaccine development, supply, and in dealing with this crisis. So, uh, you know, as far as India is concerned, we are part of multiple groupings, beginning, of course, with the UN, uh, its specialized agencies, but extending to to plurilateral constructs such as BRICS, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the Quad, and then smaller, uh, you know, trilateral uh, groupings such as. Uh, BRIC, which is Russia, India, China, or J, which is Japan, America, India. It, it's really up to you in which groups of countries you want to collaborate with, but you use those groupings to the maximum effect and where they're most appropriate, as I said. And as far as we are concerned, we would like to work uh, in close cooperation with all concerned with, on our regional, multilateral, and global responsibilities. So this is just to put it in, in, in context. I know there'll be more follow-up questions, but I just wanted to put things in perspective from India's point of view. Thank you, Ambassador Shringla. Uh, I'd move to you, uh, Your Excellency, Carl Bildt. Is, is geopolitics shaping our choices for plurilateralism versus multilateralism? Uh, what are the developments that are taking in place in the world that are different now that may be uh, uh, nudging nations? Uh, influencing nations to perhaps choose one way or the other, uh, choose plurilateralism over multilateralism. How should we read into this? What are some of the new, what are some of the global developments that are shaping this choice? Well, the global development that we've seen, I think we're all aware of it, is that for quite some time we've seen uh, geopolitical tension rising. I mean, that could be in the global scale, that could be a regional scale. And that, of course, is affecting also areas that are sort of without the or outside the immediate uh, subject. If, if we go back, say, a quarter of a century, 25 years in, in time, uh, we were at, uh, in an era where everyone was dreaming of a new age of multilateralism. Uh, after the bipolar world had collapsed, there was a new age of cooperation and the UN and Security Council and all of the above. And as we look at developments during the past quarter of a century, we know that, that well, some of that happened, uh, some of it didn't. And we have seen a situation where, of course, the UN Security Council is often blocked again, as we saw during previous years, and where it has been somewhat more difficult to get uh, uh, nations together on, on key issues. You can say the trade issues can be one example of that. At the same time, we are now living in a situation where we see the imperative 
of working together on a global scale. I mean, the climate issue is an obvious one. I mean, we can't have a solution to the climate issue in just a limited group of countries. doesn't really work. And, and the health issue has brought forward or brought uh, to, to the front very much the vulnerabilities that we feel when there is not a sufficiently robust international mechanism. So what we see now is, I think, a resurgence in belief or in the necessity of global framework or global agreements or global whatever in order to address these major global challenges. Within that, of course, uh, you can see plurilateral groupings that are trying to do that part of the entire aspect, but within that broader global framework. The Foreign Secretary indicated some of the issues on the global health side. I'm involved in that. I'm sort of nowadays a special envoy for the World Health Organization for what is called Act A, where we bring together in a formal network all of the major actors, uh, vaccines and therapeutics and, and, and testing and whatever, in order to make certain that this is available everywhere, because we know that no one is safe until everyone is safe. You can't do it in just Sweden or India or France, it's simply not going to work. Um, so there you have it. Um, we also see the possibility of having perhaps hybrid solutions. Just to take one example, which I think is interesting from my part of the world, um, the Arctic Council. Um, uh, the Arctic issues are coming more in the forefront with the climate change and the melting of the Arctic ice and the possibility of new sea routes. And then we have the Arctic Council. That is composed of the seven Arctic states exclusively, but based exp explicitly on international law, on the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea. So you have a group of nations, that's plurilateral you can say, operating on basis of international law and multilateral agreements. And I think that might well be a solution that we will see more of. Groups of nations doing things together where it's more appropriate or well possible, but based on broader global understandings. And let me just finally add that uh, we are in an age of uh, huge developments of science and technology. And what we clearly need are new global frameworks and new global understandings when it comes to issues from cyberspace to outer space. And uh, that also underlines that these issues that we need to do in as broad a framework as possible, but where groups of nations uh, obviously can take initiatives and be driving in that direction. Um, uh, Nicholas, let me turn to you. Uh, uh, you are uh, the Sherpa for, I suppose, uh, uh, two mini laterals, if I may. Uh, uh, but uh, also working uh, for a plurilateral in a way. So OECD, if you consider that as a plurilateral. So uh, I suppose the, I want, we'd like to hear your experience. Uh, OECD is doing a lot of work uh, as in support function for the G20. Uh, you're doing work on tax issues. There's been so much work that's happened on global standards. Does plurilateralism provide an intermediate step to a more broad-based multilateral framework? Or does that intermediate step typically take place, is effective, it is instituted, but it does not go any further than what it is supposed to go? What has your experience been? 
Thank you for the first of the invitation. Uh, it's, a, it's a great honor to, to be contributing to this uh, discussion and to be with uh, such a distinguished uh, panelist. Um, as, as you said, uh, Chair, the, uh, we are living in a, in a world that is uh, extremely polarized, uh, very fragmented. Uh, Prime Minister Bilt uh, insisted on, on this uh, aspect. The, the world is uh, very polycentric right now. And this, of course, has a, has a bearing on the multilateral conversation. So what is at stake is, is really to make uh, multilateralism work uh, in this uh, context um, and not be uh, dogmatic about uh, plurilateral versus uh, multilateral. And, uh, and from, uh, from that perspective, I would say the, the, the crisis that uh, we have just, uh, that we are living, uh, the COVID crisis is actually showing that uh, there were cracks in multilateralism. In fact, before before the crisis, uh, there was this um, historical failure of the Doha round uh, at the start of uh, 2000. Uh, there were also difficulties in the reform of the Bretton Woods uh, institution uh, before uh, this crisis. Uh, there were also, as the crisis has uh, highlighted, uh, difficulties uh, with the WHO. So the, the, the crisis, uh, the COVID crisis, in a way, was a, a sort of uh, a magnifier of all of that. It, 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 it was really revealing in terms of uh, the weaknesses of the, the multilateral system. And I think that plurilateralism is actually a way to find a sort of a working alternative to those difficulties of the multilateral system. Um, and and plurilateralism is not undermining multilateralism. It's actually offering a way uh, to uh, compensate uh, the weaknesses of uh, the multilateral system at a specific juncture. And uh, you, you mentioned the, the, tax, the tax agenda. I think it's a, it's a beautiful example. Uh, indeed, the OECD has worked uh, very closely uh, with the G20 uh, to put in place a number of uh, sort of uh, light institutions. Uh, Prime Minister Bilt mentioned uh, ACTA and COVAX. I would say in the area of tax, uh, we had uh, the Global Forum on Tax Transparency that we put in place uh, during the first, uh, during the great financial crisis, then to, to, to tackle tax evasion, then we put in place uh, the BEPS inclusive framework and uh, this uh, inclusive framework is now working very actively to tackle the issue of uh, digitalization of the economy and related uh, tax issues. These are very flexible forms of multilateralism. And as you said, they start with countries that are willing uh, to, cooperate, to cooperate on those issues, but they are, and this is very important, they are open architecture. So they are architecture that every country can join. Uh, as long as they uh, are uh, willing to, to, to cooperate. And I think that the, somehow the future of multilateralism is there. Uh, this is about convening flexible platforms to address specific issues. It can be vaccines, as, one, uh, as was mentioned. Uh, it can be uh, taxation. It can be still excess capacity. We, we set up with the G20 and with the OECD hosted the Global Forum on Steel Excess Capacity, which is still up and running, uh, unfortunately without China, but, uh, but I think it's, uh, it's, it, it's still a very useful uh, platform. So this is this kind of uh, 
I would say uh, more ad hoc uh, multilateralism that uh, we need to uh, we need to explore more uh, forcefully. Uh, obviously, this might not be fully satisfactory, and there are a number of issues like climate, like health, where we need really to have global institutions uh, because we need to have all countries on board. We cannot afford to have uh, free riders, uh, so we need to have truly universal uh, platforms to that to tackle those issues. But on 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 a number of other issues, we 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 need to explore more flexible. Uh, avenues, more flexible uh, vehicles uh, to tackle uh, this kind of uh, collective issues. So indeed, uh, plurilateralism can be an alternative, a complement uh, to the, the more formal multi multilateral system. And let me say that uh, multilateralism is, is an instrument. Um, this is not in itself a dogma. Uh, this is a tool. Uh, we, we, we should not be, uh, how can I say, uh, theologic about uh, multilateralism. If multilateralism doesn't work the way it used to work with, uh, for instance, the, the institutions that were set up after World War II, we need to explore alternative forms uh, which are more flexible and uh, perhaps more specific in, its, uh, in their scope. Uh, Ambassador Shringla, of course, India has a long history of engaging uh, with the world, uh, also especially in Bretton Woods institutions, including the WTO, which came up in the 90s. We have been good citizens of the multilateral uh, institutions. Uh, more lately, we have seen, including from the current foreign minister, but otherwise, uh, more issue-based partnerships, I think, is the, uh, is the phrase that we have often used in India. Uh, how does one choose which approach to pursue uh, uh, and what uh, what are some of the determinants of that approach do certain issues lend themselves better uh, for a plurilateral approach than others uh, or is it another way to think about this let me um, approach uh, the issue that you raised in a in a slightly different manner um, when you have, I mean, the, the question uh, that I have in mind, uh, which, which is really uh, in response to what you just mentioned, is that why is there a greater evidence of, uh, you know, plurilateral and unilateral, uh, let's say, meetings and uh, confabulations? I mean, why is there a resort to this? And you had given various, uh, you know, uh, aspects of that uh, uh, question uh, in, in, in terms of response, but essentially, uh, if you have uh, countries that are coming together outside of, uh, you know, uh, what we have, uh, you know, in terms of a formal setup, which is the UN uh, and its agencies and, and subsidiary bodies, etc., um, meeting to take decisions which the UN itself really is charged to do uh, and is responsible for taking those decisions, uh, then you would ask the question as to why that is happening. And one of the uh, possible responses, which has been just discussed a short while ago, is really the a lack of effectiveness uh, of some of the organs of the United Nations, uh, particularly that those that do not have a representative character or those that have not uh, evolved uh, since the UN was created, uh, you know, 75 years ago at the end of the Second World War. After all, the Security Council, uh, the permanent members are the victors of the Second World War, but we've come a long way since and, and the, the world has changed greatly. And if you don't have the means of ensuring that there is representation of countries that can make that contribution to global peace and security, 
uh, then that decision making will shift elsewhere. Uh, and so you could have uh, similar decisions, uh, perhaps more effectively out of the Quad or the G7 or the G20. I'm just, you know, putting it in. In, in I'm not. I'm just. I'm generalizing. I'm not being specific here. But I'm simply, uh, you know, asking a rhetorical question: Is that has that uh, have the Bretton Woods institutions uh, has has the United Nations system created uh, so many years ago uh, effective today? And in response, uh, India has come up with the concept of reformed multilateralism, which is really a multilateralism that seeks to provide global governance through greater representation, uh, greater voice for countries, uh, you know, that uh, could uh, make that contribution, a greater level of flexibility. It cannot be a rigid system that remains the same. The status quo remains the same for 75 years and you think it still works. It doesn't. And the same countries will resort to other means. And again, I think what I mentioned in the beginning is that, you know, countries will find the most effective and appropriate formats to engage uh, engage uh, in in, in uh, finding solutions to the important issues that are there with all of us. They could be regional issues, they could be global issues, they could be, issue, you know, subject, uh, uh, you know, sectoral issues, uh, they could be to deal, deal with health, they could be to deal with, uh, you know, um, security crises, but essentially you will try and find uh, solutions uh, which are most effective and, and really most convenient for you uh, as a country to engage with. But and, but let me not uh, also uh, take this. I mean, not let me not say that this is, in many senses, uh, plurilateralism nationalism is 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 really going to uh, supplant uh, multilateralism. And I think I agree with Mr. Pino there that plurilateralism really is a supportive format. You take decisions more effectively through a plurilateral format, but ultimately, uh, in order to ensure that they are part of a global governance uh, uh, decision making, which has uh, you know a sort of a uh, the um, you know approval or the uh, the uh, let's say um, the fullest concurrence of all states concerned, you've got to go back to the United Nations uh, and you've got to go back to formal formats that would endorse decisions taken in different ways. I mean, every country in the world would agree with the debt service suspension initiative. I mean, it's the most logical thing, and it, it but it involved the, the the more wealthy countries to say yes, we can do it, and then uh, the developing countries are beneficiaries. But all of that can easily be taken back. To the G, you know, to the uh, to the, the second committee, and then to the general assembly, and said, well, "This is a great initiative." Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think both of them work hand in hand. But we need to work a little more to ensure that global governance is more effective. That those formats that are there created to deal with global governance are today, I think, uh, uh, reviewed, and and uh, and we'll have to see what sort of uh, you know uh, alternative formulations uh, you need uh, completely change them but you can tinker with them you certainly need to evolve as you go along i mean you uh, even uh, in in normal life everybody adjusted you know and and, and adapts uh, uh, depending on circumstances and covid has been a great game changer and i think countries really need to the way we're looking at the who we need to look at the entire united nations format and see how we can make it work so, uh, Mr. Bult, I'll come to you with that last comment. Uh, there's an evolution that is required. There is clearly a need. Um, would it be fair to say that uh, when the rules of multilateral order were written, uh, it was written for a broad-based consensus, but again, the rules seem to be, I mean, they were written by the West at that time, largely. They seem to favor their way of, that way of thinking. Perhaps, uh, now that that way is not working, even for the West, uh, that the West itself is resorting to plurilateral approaches where once it held multilateral as the way forward. 
uh, Doha development round at the WTO, perhaps an, perhaps an example. Um, uh, you know, even the uh, even IMF quota reforms, uh, another example, United Nations Security Council. So perhaps uh, we need to understand that the West also needs to help shape the new institutions that are required for itself as well as for other countries. Would you agree with that formulation? No, I, I, I certainly agree and I think we all agree that uh, there's a need to constantly reform uh, the institutions. I mean, we, I think we all agree that the Security Council was set up in 1945 reflecting the realities of those days. And if, if, if I were to change the Security Council, I would, uh, well, India, I would give that a place and I would, uh, I could say something, only if you promise not, not to tell any Frenchman about it, uh, but I would have a common place for all of the Europeans under the heading of the EU, for example. That, that would reflect the realities of the present world. Um, the likelihood of this happening tomorrow is, of course, slight, if I put it in those terms. Um, and reform of Bretton Woods institutions has been slightly... Uh, slightly slow process, but, 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 but clearly necessary. I think what we are discussing here could perhaps be described as uh, the need for pluralism with a multilateral perspective, or pluralism within a multilateral framework. That is, groups of nations taking initiatives and doing things, uh, respecting international law, respecting the multilateral framework, and often with the wish, the perspective, and the desire uh, to make what they agree on being something that is agreeable to the world as a whole. I mean, this is outside the security uh, sector, which is somewhat different. So that is, I think, where we are heading. A pluralist that is not necessarily undermining multilateralism, but is trying to do what is not immediately possible with the multilateral framework, but retaining the wish, the perspective, and, and the policy aim of making this multilateral at the end of the day. And that is often the case. I think we can see quite a number of those initiatives that are taken by limited groups of states, uh, taking the forward position, so to say, on different issues. Um, you can say an extreme example of this is, of course, the G20. The G20, extremely powerful in terms of the composition, but still not multilateral. But, of course, what the G20 decide, they wish that to be something for the entire world. So that, that, that is powerful with a clear multilateral perspective. And the same, I think, we can see in quite a number of different areas. That might be the way in which the world is going to be proceeding uh, as we go ahead in this age. Of, uh, also, the increase in geopolitical tensions and the effect that that is having. Uh, thank you. So, uh, Nicholas, uh, the, you you did mention that plurilateralism a step. I think you were in broad agreement with the others that it is one of the instruments that nations have. Not necessarily, you don't have to necessarily choose uh, an approach right away. But um, uh, like Mr. Bill said, maybe it's the most immediate step forward. Uh, do you think that uh, the United Nations could have done after? what G20 did for the transatlantic financial crisis? Or could the United Nations have done what the G20 has done for the post-COVID economic recovery with DSSI and the inclusive framework? Could it have been possible or did we, it was, what's your perspective? I don't think so. To be perfectly frank and to be perfectly blunt, 
Um, I, I think this is precisely uh, what makes uh, the G20 so important, that um, somehow the G20, this is a, a powerful political shell. In itself, it's a bit of an empty shell, but it deals with certain issues, and it has this uh, ability to, to provide a political momentum, to give a political impetus to certain issues. Uh, this is what happened during the first, uh, during the great financial crisis, where the G20 put uh, all of its uh, political uh, way uh, behind the reform of uh, the international financial architecture uh, and of the prudential regulation framework. Uh, this is not something that uh, the UN could, uh, could have done. But it's also linked to the, the, the specific features of the, the G20. It's uh, somehow this is a sort of a steering committee of the, of the, the global economy. As the, the foreign secretary said, you, you have there 80% uh, of uh, global GDP, 80% uh, of trade, 80% of foreign direct investment. So obviously what, what the G20 uh, uh, decides uh, has a strong bearing on the multilateral conversation. But the interesting thing is to see that the G20 in itself is not making uh, decisions as such. Mm -hmm. the, the, the G20 is forging a polit political consensus around certain solutions, but then those solutions are brought to the formal multilateral system. On, on the DSSI, for instance, that was uh, mentioned by the Foreign Secretary, this is the IMF and the World Bank that are actually designing uh, the technical uh, solutions uh, and the, the, the policy uh, the policies to be uh, to be implemented uh, to support developing countries whatever the G20 decides on tax is actually uh, worked out at a technical level by the OECD uh, in the global forum on tax transparency or in the inclusive uh, BEPS uh, framework and whatever the G20 discusses on 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 trade is needs to be brought to the WTO and agreed by all members in the WTO. So the, the G20 really, I think, is, is part indeed of this uh, flexible go global governance that uh, we, we are discussing here. It's, it's, a, it's a sort of incubator, uh, a place where uh, political decisions at a very high level are done, uh, where they, they, the consensus can be crafted, and then uh, it can be brought to uh, to other uh, fora in the in the multilateral uh, system. This is how it works. Huh? I see that as a as a very big and very powerful uh, political uh, incubator. In fact, a powerful incubator indeed. Um, Ambassador Shringla, I'll give you the last word, uh, uh, and uh, the question would be uh, to give us the long view from India. Uh, as we look forward, uh, what are some of the uh, issues, what are some of the attributes that are likely to shape India's thinking on multilateralism or plurilateralism? In fact, you've actually helped us, when you set the context, you said bilateral, trilateral, quad, uh, so that's already two, three, and four, and plus minilateral, plurilateral, so India's engaged I think your, your opening point was India is engaged at all levels. So looking at the long view, what, is, uh, what should we from India be uh, expecting? What are some of the determinants of how this is going to sh uh, shape 
uh, going forward, uh, plurilateralism versus multilateralism, or even bilateralism, for that matter. Touch upon a quick point, uh, and that is, uh, you know, when we when we had the onset of the COVID uh, pandemic, um, we were really confronted with an with a, with the breakdown of local governance. Mm -hmm. uh, as many of us would recall, uh, you know, uh, many most of our, even developed countries uh, ran out of essential health equipment. Uh, you found that your supply chains were uh, not uh, as reliable as you thought they were. Uh, sources of supply that you took for granted, whether they were APIs or they were you know, test kits, so they were ingredients of different uh, health equipment uh, were not forthcoming. There was a scramble for these, and I do remember that you know countries scrambled. There was an unseemly scramble for for these uh, scarce resources. Um, you see that also in the case of vaccines, uh, there is a very limited supply of vaccines, and although we supply majority of the world's vaccines, uh, you know, we still haven't come up to the speed in terms of the, the requirements that are there, uh, both domestically and globally, to meet that global demand. Uh, because, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, the global community hasn't prepared for a pandemic of this nature. And uh, that is what we really need to think, that as we go along, what is the sort of global governance architecture that we need that will prepare us for non-traditional challenges, uh, which are not necessarily, you know, interstate uh, conflict. But uh, pandemics, epidemics, uh, you know, counter-terrorism, uh, cross-border terrorism, all sorts of issues that you have to deal with in today's world. Um, and, uh, and I think that is very important. Uh, and of course, as you go along, I think uh, countries have realized that uh, it is important to uh, develop your own capacities. We have a term for it called Atman Edward Bharat, which is basically self-reliance. You rely on creating your own, uh, you know, it's sort of inherent uh, uh, chains and your inherent manufacturing capacities. I'll give you an example. When we started with COVID, we found that in the entire country, there were only 14,000 ventilators for a country of 1.3 billion. Uh, today, we're talking about 450,000 ventilators. Uh, the point is that you have to have the capacity to manufacture not just for yourselves, but for the overall global good. And every country can contribute in that way. I mean, we, I'm giving one example, but we need to contribute. So the architecture as you go along, I think, has to be both plurilateral and multilateral. And wherever possible, the plurilateral system has to support uh, the multilateral system. I think that is that is important. But you need to bring in the essential reforms in the multilateral system if you don't want it to break down completely mm -hmm. in, in the form of plurilateral and minilateral uh, you know, uh, groupings and, and constructs all over the world that will then not only undermine uh, you know, international uh, order as we know it, but would also, in some senses, supplant it. Uh, this is the point that Prime Minister Bilt had made earlier, that you don't, you, I mean, at this point of time, we are not doing that, but unless there is reform, and unless uh, we see uh, uh, the world going in a certain direction, which is a reformed multilateralism, I think you will have those problems. As far as India is concerned, we will engage, uh, definitely we are committed to the multilateral system, but we will also engage plurilaterally, we will engage everywhere where it gives us an advantage, where it's effective and where it is, I think, convenient for us to engage. I think with that last statement, there is really no need for me to summarize because you've done that for, for us, Ambassador Shringla. All that's left for me is to thank you uh, for joining us uh, for this session at Rizina Dialogue. Uh, Ambassador Shringla, uh, thank you. Also, but for our viewers, you are the co-host of this conference. So uh, thank you, Ambassador Shringla. Uh, Your Excellency Carl Bill, thank you for joining us. Nicholas Pinaud, thank you very much. And all the best. Uh, G20 has an important year ahead of us. So we wish you all the best. Uh, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Policy Pod, the ORF podcast. Please subscribe to our channel for updates on upcoming episodes.